Again, let's stand as we turn in our scriptures this morning to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, we'll be closing and finishing up this chapter as we get into the Mount of Olives. Now again, uh, hear God's Word from Matthew 23, verse 34 through verse 39. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify. And some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, son of Bacarius, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and stones them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as the hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Lord, again we come to praise Thy name. Lord, You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in our love to You, our desire to see You, our desire to serve You, as You are our King. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, this morning as we continue, remember in chapter 21 we read the parable this morning, Christ comes into Jerusalem And remember the people sing, Hosanna to the name of the Lord. He went into the temple and He cleanses the temple. And you remember there He said, You've made my house a house of merchandise. In another place, John tells us that Christ says, You've made my Father's house. So the temple is the house of the Lord. Remember the Old Testament? It was the place where God's presence was in the Shekinah glory. But now again in this temple again, Christ stands there and He's cleansed it. And now He goes to Bethany in chapter 22. He comes back to Bethany and that long day there, these elders of the church, the scribes and the Pharisees, remember the Herodians and the Sadducees bring questions to Him. Seeking to trick Him. Seeking to embarrass Him before them. And Christ, again, masterfully answers their questions. And at the end, He has a question for them, and they can't answer it. And it says, and they no longer would ask Him questions. But now again, as we come to chapter 23, Christ is getting ready to to leave the temple. He's in the temple. This is the last time He will be in the temple. Remember, His presence spoke of, again, His presence, God with us. The whole idea of the temple spoke of God with us. In the midst of His people all throughout the history of Israel. Now God, Jehovah, Messiah stands in His temple. And now He begins to speak in sort of a, 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 as a court of law. He's the state's attorney bringing charges. And first of all, He turns to the people and addresses them, remember, and He speaks about how these men, their leaders, again, search search out converts and make them twofold the children of hell. 
How they always are seeking to lift themselves up and be seen of people. How they shut the door of the kingdom for, for others and will not go in themselves. On and on he goes. And then, after he finishes talking to the people and his disciples, he now turns to the scribes and the Pharisees. And I think it's kind of a truism. As the rulers, so are the people. We found in our own nation in the last 25, 30 years, if you have good rulers, the people tend to follow them. They tend to mock. I mean, not mocking in the sense of that, but to follow and do what their leaders do. And so again, it was true in, in Christ's day. As He's looking at them, you see the people as they are following, and they will follow the leaders until, even if it means they die. And now Christ turns to these men, and He begins to, to lay out woes to them. Remember, the woes are the prophets announcing of God's judgment upon the people. Isaiah chapter 5 has five woes he pronounced on Israel before God would take them by Nebuchadnezzar's hand and he would destroy the temple and take all the furniture back to Babylon and they would be in captivity for 70 years. That was a preliminary judgment to God to show them that he would one day completely destroy them. Now Christ has reached that time and he's come and he gives these Actually, seven woes or eight in Matthew. One is probably an addition from Luke. But the point is, he brings these woes and the last few again turn upon them. They're called whited sepulchers because they love to see people looking at them and they present themselves as being these wonderful, righteous men, but they are like sepulchers. On the outside, pleasant to see, but on the inside, they're dead men's bodies. And then he closed in verse 33 with kind of summing up everything for them. You're the seed of the serpent. And I think Christ intentionally draws them to that serpent because he's mentioned in Genesis 15 where God promises that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And these men are the children of the seed of the serpent. Christ has already told them in John chapter 8 that you are of your father the devil. And so he has not missed any words with them, but now he calls them vipers and serpents. And then in verse 34 now, he brings this this discussion to them, this, this charge against them as it is in the court. He's bringing the charges and now he's going to come bring it to a conclusion in verse 34. And he says, wherefore? Based on all the woes, based on your character, based on who you are as leaders, he says, Behold, I am sending unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. Now Luke, in his rendition of these woes, he uses the term prophets and apostles, or apostles and prophets. That's what they are. And I think there's kind of a broad stroke here as Christ is using that term. Now, first of all, notice again the idea of behold. This is a very emphatic phrase. I am sending. Behold. Christ is saying, listen to me. Sort of like a mother when she gets her children. Look in my eyes. Look look at me. I want you to hear this. Listen. Because this is important. Behold. I am sending, and actually that little phrase again in the, in the Greek, the, the 
subject and verb are in the word. Like the verb to send is apostello. But now if you put the, the pronoun separate, it makes it emphatic. And though Christ is saying, Behold, look in my eyes. Listen to me. I myself. Christ is here speaking in authority. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He's the one they should be following. And Christ is making a plea to them at least for the fact of civil obedience, that He would save them from what's coming, the physical destruction. If they will not believe, at least follow and hear to save yourselves, which may save some eternally. And so now, as He speaks there, He says, I myself am sending. And now that word send is different from, there's a couple other words, the idea of send. But this word is actually a legal word. It's the word we get, apostles, from apostello is the word we get, the, the noun, apostles. You can be an apostle, which is not the capital A apostle. And there were others who were called apostles who were not of the twelve. But the point is, An apostle was a person who was legally designated to speak in behalf for somebody else. They were sent with a commission. When a king sent one out, a person out, he was called an apostle. He sent somebody who had legal abilities to speak in his behalf. And so what Christ says, I myself, we might even put in there, I'm the king, the son of God. I am sending And I am sending. He says already, he's got the apostles there, those that he's chosen, these men who are called apostles, and he's sending them out upon the earth. Now the word earth in the Greek can be translated land, and Christ in there, I think in the context, is it probably would be better to translate it the land. The land of Israel. I'm sending my apostles, my designated speakers, and that would be apostles, And it appears that there were some who were called New Testament prophets. And then the the idea of scribes, I believe he's probably referring there to those who will be scribing or writing the Scriptures who are not by office apostles. Luke, Jude, James, and Mark. None of those held offices as we know within the context of the church as official apostles. James, again, was the elder of Jerusalem. But so these are who Christ is saying, I'm sending them out in this period of time. And we understand this to be the period between Christ's resurrection and ascension until the canon of Scripture is finished. And so now, as He sends them out, notice what He does. He's telling us the future, because in verse 35 He's going to come back to the past. The future, I'm sending them out to you. And you will kill some of them. Remember, it's not long after this. Christ, again, will be dead in three days. He will be raised. And for 40 days, He will be upon the earth. And on the 50th day will be the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 will come to know Christ. In a few more days, 5,000. These are ones He's sending out. And we find that right off, Shortly after the day of Pentecost, they kill Stephen. They will kill some. They stone him, remember, and there's a man there by the name of Paul who's part of this work that Christ is speaking of. They will kill. Remember, he had letters to persecute the church until the Lord saved him. 
And then He becomes part of those who are persecuted. He says, He tells us in, in Corinthians, He was beaten four or five times with 39 lashes. He was left for dead after they had stoned Him. He was shipwrecked. And He and Barnabas were persecuted. And we find as we're going through the book of Galatians and through the Gospels, everywhere He went, the Jews had a a revolution trying to bring a revolution against Him. They persecuted Him. We find that again, James, the brother of Jesus Christ, becomes the, the elder of Jerusalem and he's beheaded. James, the writer, the apostle is thrown off of the pinnacle of the temple. He didn't die from it. It was about 60 to 70 feet tall. And when he hit the bottom, he didn't die, and they clubbed him to death. So you hear these these people that Christ is right now speaking of. Remember, He's drawing back to them. Remember what we saw last week? He says, as they do all this pretty work on the prophet's graves, they say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers... We would never have touched the prophets. We would be right in there with them. We would have loved them. We would not be like our fathers. And Christ is drawing a picture for them that they are just like their father. And so now He's saying, this is what you are going to do in the future, in the short future. It's about to happen right now. Matter of fact, they're already in doing it because, remember, they're going to put Christ on the cross in two days. Messiah stands before them, the greatest of all prophets, the greatest of all kings, the greatest of all priests. Jesus Christ, they will put Him on the cross and say, but we're not like our fathers. And again, Christ is drawing a picture to them to say, you are the worst generation of Israelite leaders who have ever lived. And when you put some people in there, you put Ahab in there and Jezebel, of course, they they were in the uh, in uh, in Israel, but again you put Jotham. Uh, I mean Joth, uh, Joth, Jethram. He's uh, the father of Joash. Married Athaliah. We'll talk about him in just a moment. I mean, these wicked, the wicked of all the wicked kings you can think of. These men are are the top. They are, the, they are the generation in which all this is coming to bear now. And God's cup of wrath is filled. And He says, and you will scourge them from the, from the synagogues. Remember, right off in Acts, after the, after the day of Pentecost, they take Peter and John and they scourge them in their synagogues. And so now, we see in verse 35, Christ begins with a strong word to use to focus on me. He says, so that... Now that refers back to what he's just said. You are going to scourge them. You're going to kill them. You're going to be just like your fathers of old. So that. There's a reason that they are doing this. So that upon you. Now this is looking at it from God's angle. Not from theirs. So that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed from upon the earth. From the Lord. From the, uh, the blood of the righteous able. Again here is talking about. Ever since the beginning, not just the land of Israel and the kings of Israel and, and, and there in Israel. He's talking about since the beginning of time, the first man, again, who was martyred, who was killed, was killed by the very first man who was born of Adam. Chapter 5, Adam begot a, man, a, a, ch- a child, a man in his own image. 
And we find right off in creation, the first child ever born after the fall, we see the great effects of that fall and the depths of sin that it comes to the very first one. You would think, well, we'd have a little bit of time before we get so bad. Cain is the first child born of Adam and he becomes the personification of the devil himself. Peter says that. Christ says that when he says you're of your father the devil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. So now Christ is drawing from Abel's death and Cain's killing him to point out that these men are just like Cain. And now what he's doing, he's going to draw it all the way through in that. And he says that all the blood of the righteous blood, starting with Cain, or starting with Abel, will be on your hands. And so what he's doing now when he says, and from Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barcarius, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Now again, there's some, there's some debate as who who Zacharias is. Again, is he... Again, Zacharias the prophet who wrote the book of Zechariah, the book just before Malachi, it says he's the son of Bacarius. But there's nothing in Scripture that ever says he was a martyr. There is another Zacharias who is actually killed between the altar and the temple. And his name is Zacharias, but he's the son of, of uh, Jedediah, uh, Jehoiada. Now again, I believe personally that the Chronicles is the one that he's talking about. Now it says Jehoiada lived 130 years. So probably what he's saying here is Zacharias is his grandson. And his father was probably Baruch or Barakitis, which are the same names in the Hebrew. The point being, again, I'd say this because, first of all, there's no record of Zechariah being martyred, but also Christ is drawing the focus upon the first man in Scripture and the last man in the Hebrew Scripture were, are, are martyred. He's the last martyr in the, all of the Scripture. Remember, Second Chronicles, or First and Second Chronicles, were written after they come back from 70 years of, of captivity in Babylon. And as in, in, in logical order, Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament. And so Chronicles chapter 2, or the second Chronicles, tells this story. Now, remember Athaliah. Ahab was, was her father. Jezebel was her mother. She married Jotham, who was again the king of Israel. He dies, and when he died, she kills all of her grandchildren, except one. The sister keeps Joash and escapes with her life and his. And they stay and Jehoiada protects them in the temple. So he grows up with the priest in the temple. When he's seven years old, Jehoiada takes the soldiers with Josiah into the queen's room and kills her. And remember those great last words? Oh, treason, treason. She never took the crown. She never actually took the throne by any kind of rights. She just took it because she had a military who would protect her. She was a very wicked woman. Red Israel led it led the nation of Judah into all kinds of wickedness. 
Yes, abortions, killing their babies, worshiping Baal, offerings to all kind of gods. She's a very wicked woman, just like her mother. And now, once she's dead, Joash is set on the throne. Remember, he was a good king, and he's a reminder that just because he did right in the eyes of the Lord, he was always good. David was right in the eyes of the Lord. He committed murder and adultery. Solomon was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he had all these women, and he built uh, places where they could worship their false gods. Joash did all God's bidding. He brought the law back, established the priesthood, everything as he should. But in the end of his life, somehow, somewhere, he got upset with Zacharias and he had him killed. And they killed him in the temple. Not in the temple proper, but in the gates of the temple. Between the altar and what would be the Holy of Holies, the building in which the Holy of Holies was. That's what happened there again, you see, uh, in his life there at the end. But yet it says he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. But he's the last person recorded in the Old Testament to die a, mar- a, a martyr. And so I think this is what Christ is saying. All those who were killed by your fathers in the Scripture, Israel's history, and he's not saying he was the last one. We're getting that for 400 years. There are others killed. But boy, he's the last one recorded. And he says, all the blood of all the righteous men in Israel who were killed by your fathers, you are filling up the cup of God's wrath. And now God is going to deal with you, and the sad thing is, and the people as one. Like leader, like the people. Or the people like the leader. And so now we see again, as Christ now draws attention... And now notice his emphasis in verse 36. Verily, there's that word again, truly, verily, behold. All those words have the idea, these are things that are important. And now Christ says, verily. Amen and amen, let it be. It will happen. Verily, I say unto you. Now he's talking to the leaders. Now remember, the people are no doubt listening to him. So they all get to hear this. But he's speaking to those who are responsible. Our leaders in Washington are responsible. The problem is, is you and I suffer for their ignorance, for their cockiness, for their arrogance, for their hatred of God. We will suffer because they are the ones who are in leadership. But now notice what Christ says to these people. He's speaking directly to them. All these things... And I think he's saying, first of all, all these things that you are going to do are going to happen. This generation is going to be guilty of putting the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament and those who write Scripture and my disciples to death. You will be responsible. And you will also, again, suffer God's judgment. All these things shall come upon notice this generation this generation you'll see the same verse back over in chapter chapter 24 verse 34 verily I say unto you all these things will come upon this generation this is when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 when the temple will be destroyed but right now he's drawing these two things together this is the beginning and now Christ says, all these things will come up this generation. Now, in Scripture, 
a generation, Moses says, a generation is basically 40 years. 40 years. Uh, that normally has to do with the idea of judgment, of chastening, of testing. Remember, Christ went into the desert and He, and he, he he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was tempted by the devil. I mean, He was tested for 40 days. When God destroyed the earth, we see His judgment comes and it rained upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Israel was in the desert for 40 years. Moses went up on the mountain, remember, and that when he went up there was a test for the people. For 40 days he was on the mountain with God and receiving His law, and when he comes back down we see the people can't, can't be without Him. They're breaking God's law as He comes down and doing what God hates. And so that idea of 40 days and 40 years, this generation, God says, I'm going to give you chance, a testing, a proving, a chastening. But then comes the end. And so now Christ says, this generation, He's talking about people living there at this point. He means that in chapter 24 too. That generation, 40 years, it's now around 30 A.D. So within that next generation, A.D. 70, we know Rome destroyed the temple. Actually, it started around 68, but then uh, it was in Titus finished the work and they took the children of Israel off to Rome to be slaves. But now Jesus said, it's coming on this generation and He's looking at people, looking Him in the eye, saying, God's going to destroy you. And the destruction is not just going to be a bullet to the head and you're over. There is going to be much, much suffering. When we read Josephus, we find that the, 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 the curses of God in Deuteronomy 28, where He says, when you do this, when you follow the nations, you will go into war. God will destroy you. The fruit will not grow. He says, women will eat their children. We kind of cringe at that. Josephus says exactly the same. When he was there at Jerusalem, he said, the women were eating their children. There was no food. And all the agony, there was killing in the streets. And again, the zealots of the Israel killed more people probably than the Romans did in Jerusalem. There were many who wanted to surrender and the zealots wouldn't let them. I mean, on and on the things, and Christ knows this. And that leads us right into verse 37. And I think there's a comparison here in verse 37 with David. Before I get to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Remember, David was on the throne. And remember, because of his sin, God says the sword will not leave your house. But remember, he had this one son, Absalom. Everybody loved him, including his father. Absalom literally ripped the kingdom from David. He was trying to make himself the king and set upon the throne. David fled from him. And remember, as Joab is getting ready to go out into battle, David, even loving his son then, says, Joab, defeat him, but don't kill him. Don't kill him, Joab. That was the kingdom's king's announcement. Remember, Joab kills him. He doesn't tell him right away, but when he does, you get those words that, jo that David cries out. Remember, David is a type of Christ. And a type of Christ doesn't have to be perfect like Christ. He's a picture there in certain aspects of his life. He was the king, a friend of God. 
Again, now David, as he cries out these words, almost gives you the picture of Christ, how he feels when he's speaking of Jerusalem. Absalom, Absalom, my son, would that I have died in your place. You can imagine a man's heart who loved this son. As wicked as he was, he still loved him. And he didn't want him to die. He said, I would have died for him. And in one sense, David, the picture and type of Christ, is telling us what he did, what Christ is doing for us. He was dying for us because He loved us from before the foundation of the world. And He would give Himself to us who were just as wicked as these Israelites. And now Christ, as He's now speaking, He's just saying, all these things are going to come upon this generation. Now, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now most people kind of think of that. Well, He's talking about Israel. Jerusalem at that point is sort of like Washington. We would say those men in Washington. Those rulers in Washington. Washington oppresses us. This is what he's saying. He's not talking about every individual there. He's talking about these men who make up the leadership and the rulership of Israel. Jerusalem. And so now as he's crying out, you see the pity that Christ has for them. Because again, it's a physical aspect first of all. He understands the agony of what they are going to suffer and the people are going to suffer for them. Like Absalom. Christ loves Israel. He loves His people. The nation here. And again, he, His first desire again is to keep them from having to suffer this physical aspect of torture and punishment. Save the nation, as it were. But now notice He says, Jerusalem and Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stones them that are sent unto you. God Himself, remember in the parable, the man sends his son to take up the rent and they kill him, throw him out and say, we want to take the inheritance for ourselves. This is what the rulers in essence have done. They've usurped their authority over the people and say, the nation is ours. It doesn't belong to God. We're the ones in control. Isn't that what we say about Washington? They think that we're the ones who serve them. We're the ones they rule over, and we are nothing but idiot people. We're sheep to follow. They own the nation. Who cares about the law? This is what these men were saying. Who cares about God's law? The Constitution of Israel was God's Word. Who cares? We know more than anybody. We know how to rule a nation. And so now, God, this is what Christ is saying to them. You that kill the prophets. You kill the ones that God sends. And now He says, How often would I have gathered thy... Notice, thy children. He doesn't any longer say, My children. He looks upon the people as being under the rule of those that God has set up as rulers. Remember, God sets up the bases of men, says Nebuchadnezzar. These men were set in God's place to rule the people from God's Word. They choose to rule rather in their own abilities and have men look upon them as being the ones. And Jesus says, I would have gathered your children. In other words, I would have saved them. They would not have had to go through this. But, and I notice, I would have gathered them and He draws a picture. 
I would have gathered them together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. You know, when something happens in the chicken yard, the biddies come to the mother. No matter what the problem, she just cuddles them under, under her wings and protects them. Doesn't matter what's going to happen, she's going to take the brunt of whatever. This is what Christ is saying, I would have done that. I would have gathered your, your children just like a mother can gathers her children. But you would not. You would not. God is counting them accountable for what is coming to pass. Remember in Scripture, God talks about the degrees of punishment in hell. Many of these people, the men who rule the world, will be in hell, have much more to pay for than those who were their subjects. God holds those He gives power and might and authority to in much more esteem. And therefore, they will get much more punishment for what they do. But now, here's that word again, behold. Behold, and notice the word. In 21, Christ says, You have made My house a house of merchandise. Behold, your house is left on you desolate. That is, vacated, empty, lonesome by itself. There's nothing there. And he's talking about the temple. Christ says, your house no longer. You wanted, remember the, the parable again. They wanted to kill the son. Why? Because they could take the inheritance. Christ is saying, you want the building? You've got the building. I'm leaving it. The presence of God is no longer to be here. And now, Jesus is drawing a graphic picture for us. If you read the scripture here, it's one of those word pictures. Think Christ is standing in the temple area, one of the courts there. People gathered around. He says, Your house is now vacated. Verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1, and it says, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God of God, very God of very God, the Son of God who came to save His people from their sins, Jesus in the flesh, who is the God-man, the Messiah that all Israel had been waiting for. These, the leaders... And remember, the leaders were the ones who hated Him and turned the people who were following Him against Him. And it says He left the temple. No longer, never does Christ go back to the temple. He has left. He says the house is empty. God's presence no longer dwells here. I am giving you, in essence, your house. You can have it. Because it's nothing but brick and mortar. Literally, stones. Which will be, as we get to chapter 24... He says, you will not see one stone left upon another. If you ever understood and read about what the temple, how the temple was built, the, the Romans must have done something amazing. These stones, some of them are 8 and 10 and 14 feet long, 5 or 6 feet wide, stacked upon one another, and they turned them all over. Not one, literally Josephus says, not one was left standing on another. Christ left it to them, and we see now God's wrath comes upon them. But He says unto them now, Your house is left empty, for I say unto you, You shall not see Me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now this is not a prophecy. This is an indefinite statement. He said, you will not see me until. Now, again, what's the until? That's the indefinite aspect. First of all, they will see Him. Matter of fact, they will see Him in three days as He hangs upon the cross and they choose to welcome in Barabbas, a murderer, as Luke says, a man who hated Rome, and they choose Him above welcoming Christ as their King. They made their decision here. And Christ says again to them, you basically, you make your bed, now you must sleep in it. But He says, you will not see Me. And this idea of blessed, saying blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord. Christ here is not, He's not saying to them, there's no hope for any of you to be saved. But He says, you will not see Me. And the point is, you will not see Me spiritually. I don't think He's talking about here in the visible. He comes, they will all see, He says later, when He comes in judgment. In the clouds, in Matthew 24. He's not talking about when He comes back and every eye sees Him. We see Him as judge as we see Him riding on the clouds in the Old Testament of judgment. But here He's saying now, those that call upon the name shall be saved. Those that see Him as blessed will call upon Him and they will see Him spiritually. They will enjoy fellowship and communion in their salvation of Him if they call upon Him. But now God, Christ, turns from the Jews to the Gentiles. And we see Paul telling us in 2 Corinthians again, he says, even in that day, he says again, when they read Moses, he says, there's a veil over their eyes. Even in the synagogues when Paul goes to preach, and they read their Scriptures, remember, he says there's a veil over their eyes. God has shut them and covered their eyes. They can't see. But then he also gives us hope. Nevertheless, when it shall, re- shall turn to the, they that turn to, shall turn to the Lord, the veil will be lifted. He's not saying they won't be saved. Now I believe Paul does in chapter 11 speak of Israel coming back as a body of Jews into the church to be united. But the point is, it's true of all of us. If you do not turn to Christ, you will never welcome Him. You must welcome Him. You must turn upon Him. And He says, and they that believe in the Lord shall be saved. And we turn to Him. And this is what Paul is Christ is saying here. Even in this day. Now we find after His resurrection, it says there were many Jews, meaning scribes and Pharisees, and the people that believed afterwards. We find 3,000 coming at Pentecost, 5,000 shortly after. We see that over 400 people saw Jesus at one time. We see the growth of the church there. But when you look at Israel itself, there were several million people living in Judah. At the time of, 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 of Pentecost, or, or Passover, there's probably 3 or 4 million people in Judah because people all over the known world come back, Jews especially, and proselytes. So 8,000, 10,000 people is not very large. But they turn the world upside down. And God, again, destroys Israel. They were the worst generation that has ever lived. There have been bad people. And it wasn't bad because of how many people died or not. Other people have killed many more. In China, they tell, tell us, Mao and his followers have probably killed as many as 100 million <coughs> The Russians killed 30, 40 million in World War II. I read something about Khrushchev, who lived in our day and time, or at least most of us' day and time, killed several million in Russia. 
more than it happened. It wasn't the number. It was the circumstances and who they had sinned against. These were God's people. The leaders were to lead them in righteousness. And they were guilty of the blood of all the martyrs of the church. And there there was a straight line from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent battling. And now it had reached its peak. And now the Son of God would come and He would crush Satan's head there at Calvary. And those that put Christ upon that cross and were responsible would take forth, God says, you will be responsible. You and I benefit from these wickedness of these men. God causes the sin of men to glorify Him. And now again, it was because they had rejected, God now brings salvation to you and I. This is what He's talking about here. Christ was not defeated because He was... He loved Jerusalem and he really did care about his people. But at the same time, he had come to save his people, which was all the elect from all time. And he did. He fulfilled the Father's wishes. He obeyed the Father in covenant to give himself for those the Father would give unto him and give the Spirit to them that they might believe. And yet, Christ mourns over their wickedness, knowing the future and trusting Him, His Father, to bring all that He had given to Him to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your goodness now. We thank You for the blessings. As we see Christ and His pity for these people, yet even in pity He must pronounce judgment. Was it something that God is pleased? We find in Scripture, God is not pleased with having to, to punish the wicked. But yet, because of His justice... He judges unrighteousness. He judges sin. And Lord, you have judged us, our sin, in Christ Jesus. Lord, he came to save his people from their sins. As David cried, he would that he could have died for Absalom. Christ has died for us. For those you have given to him before the foundation of the world, those that you tell us that he loved before the foundation of the world, who were just as great as sinners as any sinner that has ever lived. Yet, Christ died for us because He loved us. And why did He love us? The most we can say is what Scripture says, because He loved us. There was nothing in us that was lovely, pleasing. We were all dead in trespasses and sins, unable to do anything. And yet, Lord, You died for us in our stead. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' holy name, Amen.